Well, the events of Easter are easily the most important things you can know about and believe in because of those particular things. The action and the reality of Jesus being raised from the dead is the greatest event, you could easily say, in all of human history. The foundation of the gospel that we respect and align ourselves with here, the the foundation of the gospel is that Christ died in the place for sinners and was then three days later raised from the dead, showing that He has conquered sin and death forever for those who belong to Him. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that, if you confess that, the Bible says you will be saved from the wrath of God, from the torment of hell, and you'll be placed in the goodness and in the presence of God forever. So according to God's Word, to be saved, you have to know, you have to go to, and you have to trust in the very person of Jesus. That's the true hope that we have this day. You have to know and go to or ascend and trust the very person of Jesus for any hope in your life. Now, written uh, about a hundred years or a couple hundred years after Christ's life, what is known to the church as the Apostles' Creed, it summarizes the foundational beliefs of Christianity. It's what we easily confess and what we join other Christians in confessing together. It, in many ways, is the guiding boundary lines, if you will, of our doctrine. We fit within it because of what it says. And within it, we confess in part that Jesus, quote, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again. A couple of years later in in 325 AD, the the Nicene Creed, I don't know why I just said 325, 325. It sounds way more religious to say like 325 AD. The Nicene Creed, a creed creed that flexes on on the clarity of the Trinity, says this in part about Jesus. It says, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, for all of us who are here and believers in Christ Jesus, knowing Christ according to the Scriptures, instead of by some myth or even by our own feelings, as existential as they may be, knowing Christ according to the Scriptures is the single most important thing you can give your ambition to. So friends, do you know Him according to how He has been presented to us? If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to the book of Matthew chapter 14, of which was just read. For if you're here as a guest or you are someone who is near to or new to the church, typically here the Bible is preached on its own terms instead of on my own ideas or other imposing thoughts or even trying to catch some, some combining, combining themes or takeaways scattered throughout the Bible. A right sermon, we believe, seeks to have the text of the Bible expose itself to us where we believe God will shape and fashion us by His very Word being understood. We go to the Word in order to understand who Christ is, recognizing that in believing in Christ according to the Scriptures, we are saved. And today, though it's a Christian holiday, I'm going to keep going through from what we've been hearing from the book of Matthew, picking up from where we, follow, or where we stopped in Matthew chapter 14. Now, the context here in this passage still within an intro. 
Uh, don't worry, it won't be a two-hour sermon. So if you're taking notes on an outline, still within the intro here, the context of our passage, it's a display of Jesus feeding more than 5,000 people, is within, you can think of it, it's within a series of rejections of who Jesus is. It's within a series of rejections. Matthew, who's the author of what is known as this gospel, is showing scenarios of people rejecting Jesus and scenarios of people rejecting what is called the kingdom of heaven. And these rejections, there are eight of them all in a row. These rejections come just after Jesus tells his people what the kingdom of heaven is like. So you can imagine Matthew piecing together this gospel allowing Jesus to say the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he goes on to say, here's one scenario of people rejecting it, here's a second scenario of people rejecting it, and then a third scenario today, you might think, how are they rejecting Jesus when he is feeding 5,000 people? These rejections come after Jesus is telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like, and that, and that description of the kingdom of heaven comes just after Jesus was showing us uh, pra- that he was practically majestic and holy, divine. And after that, it was shown that he was truly sovereign over everything by demonstrating all of these miracles left and right of all the things that he was doing. So it's amazing that the kind of tension and buildup of how awesome Jesus was allowing himself to be seen as, and then in a, in a twist of events, showing us how many people and how they were rejecting him. He is God, holy and awesome, And we might marvel at the reality that they were rejecting him again and again. Yet it's Matthew who shows us little by little that he's still being rejected even by us today. Most recently, Herod had just rejected the message of Jesus. That was Matthew 14, 1 through 12. And before that, it was Jesus' own friends in his own family, in his own hometown who were rejecting his own divinity. So I've got a question for you with that kind of setting the scene or context. In this passage, there is a natural doubt about Jesus's ability. There's a natural doubt about Jesus's ability. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to ask you, and you can answer for yourself, contemplate it the rest of the day, what makes you doubt Jesus or God's ability? What would make you doubt Jesus' or God's ability? What makes you doubt God's ability? That's a form of rejection by doubting Him. Whatever you're going through, it's as if you'd naturally say, and we've all said things like this, you can't do that, God. And that's rejecting God. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what, what could God do, think of this for your own self, what could God do to show you in your own life, that he is fully trustworthy of your whole life? What could God display for you to the point where you go, okay, if you can do that, then I could trust you. I hope you see from this passage today that you can very much trust Jesus. Our passage is in the midst of a turning point in Jesus' own ministry. He wasn't showing himself to be the kind of Messiah that people were wanting him to be or what they thought they had been looking for for a long period of time. These would have been, this would have been a generation that would have had forefathers stretching back four to five hundred years who are waiting in their mind for a particular soldier Messiah to show up. And here's Jesus breaking down what they thought he would be like. They were longing for someone who would bring them physical relief and relief from the oppression of the Roman Empire. They wanted stuff, 
Sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. (laughs) They wanted stuff, and they wanted freedom from authority. They just wanted to live how they wanted to live and to get what they thought they deserved. Now, our passage begins by Christ withdrawing from a place called Galilee. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, imagine a lake and imagine a big town next to that lake. Jesus is withdrawing from there. It's in the midst of his turning point, and it's in the midst of his movement. Now, historically, this would have been about one year before Jesus would have been crucified. So you think at, at the, uh, almost at the final moment of his life before he was crucified, yet his heart was set forward uh, where he performs, well, frankly, his most famous miracle, I think we could all say, the feeding of 5,000 plus people. People think that it was not only 5,000 just men, but maybe 5,000 additional women and people there had kids all the time. So we're looking at maybe like 20 to 25,000 people that Jesus was feeding them. All right, so if, if any of you, if you've ever planned an event, like a family event for like 10 people, that breaks me, right? When Brooke and I invite friends to go out to dinner, I I just crumble. That's why we always go to Chili's. It's, it's always a welcome home for us, right? But you think about, think about what it looked like to feed not 5,000 people, but 20,000 people on a whim when darkness is coming. Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to see from this passage. There are a couple of things that I think just seep to the top that bring themselves up as it boils. And the first one is as Jesus is doing these miraculous things again and again, I hope that you will first see his compassion for people. You think about this from the verses 13 through 16. I hope you see his compassion. This is a stunning picture of Jesus' own compassion. Not only is he just left and right dealing with all of these people and all of these problems, it's his heart that really shows us an amazing thing about who he is. Before you can appreciate the force of this passage as a whole, you need to understand the weight that was on Jesus. It says that he knew he needed rest and he wanted to be alone. In many ways, it looked like he's being attacked, and so he's wanting to peacefully withdraw, knowing that if he lets things kind of simmer down a little bit, then he can go back out and live his life as the Lord. But he needs rest. He wants rest. He wanted to pray and to commune with his heavenly Father. So he left the public eye, got into a boat with his disciples, and went all the way way to the other side of the lake. Now, the lake there that's being talked about here, if you think about a lake that is the size of the city of Enid, the, the city, all the, all the boundaries from as far north to as south, that's about as big as the sea is. So in many ways, it's not like the biggest lake we've ever been a part of, but it's not a small, you know, it's not like a rowboat, right? So they're going across and they could escape people if they could just go to the other side, except people knew his next move and you could say, beat him there. You can imagine a bunch or hundreds of people running along the side as they're in this boat going to the other side of the sea, and they're going to meet him right when he gets outside of the boat. Like he was stepping off the boat, and everyone's already there, but there are thousands of them waiting for him to continue to do what he was normally doing, serving them and preaching to them. But he's tired. Keep in mind, he wanted rest. There was never a better time in Jesus' ministry where he could have rightly said, look, guys, I need a break. I'm tired. Give me a night. How many of you parents on a Saturday morning get poked? Why did your kid wake up at six? Like, what is wrong with this kid? And you're just like, five more minutes. You can imagine him being justified in saying, I'm exhausted. My disciples are beat. John is dead. Look at what's happening with us. They think that they're next. I need to pray right now. 
And Jesus knew that his disciples needed relief. Historically, by other gospels, so if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there are four uh, books called gospels in the Bible, and, and all of them have this account within them. So, so if we look at other gospel accounts, Mark or Luke or John, and we read this same passage, we can, we can understand maybe a fuller picture, not that we're left needing one in Matthew, but a fuller picture of kind of what is happening here. We recognize that what had been said historically within the other Gospels that the disciples would have just returned from their great uh, mission trip, if you would. They had been going out and seeing people coming to a knowledge of Christ. They were healing people as well. They were casting out demons. They, they had come back. Imagine coming back from a very long trip where you'd been working the entire time. They had seen intense things, awesome things, but then they come back and they hear about John being beheaded because of the same message that they, they had been preaching to other people. It's as if when Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side, they would have been first to jump in and say, I've had enough of this week. You can imagine what would have been, on, uh, been in their minds while ministering the Word of God, knowing that at any moment Herod's men could have arrived and done to them the exact same thing that they had done to John, thrown him in prison, allow him to languish for months, and then eventually be executed, not on a judicial charge, but on the whim of a wicked, wicked woman. You recognize the pressure that all of these 13 people are under getting off this boat. And here are thousands wanting Jesus to minister to them. Now, as an aside, this is just a side comment. I hope you notice that in weariness and looking out for others who've been placed under his care, in Jesus' own weariness and in his own understanding of him shepherding these 12 other disciples beside him, Jesus sought to go to the Father in prayer. When, when physically you could imagine he was feeling empty and also recognizing that he's got other people to look out for, yet he wants to go where? Not just to another side to avoid people, but he wants to go there for solitude. He wants to go there so that he can pray. Jesus sought to go to the Father in prayer. I, I just think that's something to marvel at. Part of doing the will of the Father, part of serving the will of the Father, part of following God is consistency in communion with the Father in prayer. But I also don't want you to overlook not just the practice of Jesus here, but I want you to see his compassion. It was, you could say, time to rest, recharge, have some downtime, maybe go on a spiritual retreat or a sabbatical, but, but see Jesus' compassion here. When Jesus steps out of the boat, the text says that he was not only seeing crowds, he was not just seeing people who needed him or wanted him. His reaction is immediate and instinctive. Look there in the text of what happens there. He does three things when he sees the multitudes. First, Matthew tells us that he feels compassion on the multitudes. And this is not just an emotional sense that is ringing through him. I mean, how many of us during the holidays watch those very, very sad uh, animal commercials. And we feel sad. And then we go to the mall. We just move on, right? We go. Now, there are probably some of you that <laughs> adopt five of them or whatever. Good luck to you. But we feel sad in a moment, and then we just move on with the rest of our lives. This is, this is not what Jesus was doing. He was not just having an emotional reaction to seeing people who were needy. Our word compassion here in the text actually means our stomach is turning over to the point where we actually go toward or go forward with another action. He was sickened, his stomach was turning, and inwardly it moved him towards them. That's what it looks like for him to feel compassion for them. It wasn't just 
feeling like, well, you seem to have a rough day. Me too. But rather, something happened where his stomach turned over and he went towards them. Second, he doesn't just feel compassion. Matthew says that he then started to heal all the sick people there. He then started to heal their sick. But then the third thing that happens here, and this is something that Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark and Luke and John do tell us, is that he didn't just have compassion and go towards them. He didn't just go towards them and start healing them. But as he was healing them and as he was operating amongst them, he was also preaching to them. He was teaching them in that very moment. He preached and he instructed them. He healed them. This is the type of ministry that Jesus was doing all the time. He went up because he's a generous God. He heals people who are sick, but then he also tells them, if you think your body is sick, let me tell you about your soul. We see these these two actions together all the time throughout all of the scriptures. And many times we'd be an heir to, to discount one of them and make the mark of our ministry about one and not the other or to make our ministry about one and disregarding the other. Jesus had compassion. And what is the outcome of his compassion? Healing and preaching to them about his life. So Jesus' response during his own time of need was to recognize and respond to the needs of others. He had compelling confession. Friend, do not undervalue the importance of this picture. It's clearly impacted the disciples, because this is the, only, this, is, this is the only parable, or this is the only section of Scripture that is repeated in all four Gospels besides the very death and resurrection of Jesus. There are a lot of moments that are captured in the Gospels as a whole. If you read them just side by side, there's a lot of stuff that happens there. And in many ways, you can, you can synthesize them and go, okay, this circumstance was repeated in Mark, this circumstance was repeated in Matthew and Mark, and then John was left out. But here, in all four of the Gospels, it records Jesus having compassion and feeding the 5,000. So it's obviously an important moment on showcasing who Christ is. And that's really what we are aiming to do and understand this day, even though it's Easter Sunday, yet it's just like any other Sunday throughout the year, it is allowing us to understand a greater glimpse of who Jesus is. He is compassionate towards those who are in great need. But look at what happens. It's been a long day. Night was coming. And his disciples came to him and said, look at verse 15 of the text there. It says, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. What were they saying? What were these disciples coming up to Jesus saying? They're saying, hey man, it's getting dark. Places to buy food are closing. Even McDonald's is shutting down here in a little bit. We're in the middle, we're in the middle of nowhere. Like it is a far stretch to get to where places are so that people can eat. Let people go home. Just send people home. They'll, they'll do whatever you say. But what does Jesus say? What is the reaction to them? Who, who honestly, who wouldn't, who of us wouldn't say the same thing? Hey Amen. it's getting dark. We don't belong here. Everyone's starving and hangry people do hangry things. But what does Jesus respond with? Look at verse 16. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. In effect, he tells the disciples that the best place for the people to be, the best place people could be, darkness, hunger, deserted place, is with him. The best place they can be is in the presence of him. And that being the case, if they need to be near him, give them some food to eat. I hope you see Jesus' compassion here. He wasn't moved because it was the right time. 
He wasn't moved in compassion towards them because it was a convenient location. He wasn't moved in compassion towards them because he did or didn't have a lot of things. His compassion towards them was because of his love for them. His compassion of them was because of his love for them or to them. Now, now I hope that we can just reflect for a little bit here on God's ability to instruct us and change us. How does God show himself to actually change you or to fill you or to satisfy you? How has God been normally acting to transform your life? It's as if a generosity from him is continually a fountain of love towards you. I was in a Bible study this last Thursday at at a church member's house where uh, five or six of us gather every other Thursday, and we're reading uh, an incredible book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And we're at chapter something where we were talking about the goodness and the severity of God. And far too often, part of the chapter, far too often is that we don't think about God's goodness as a constant flowing of generosity from Him. We, we just think it's like one of those hidden, you know, bonus points that you find in Mario Kart, where if you're just in the right place at the right time, you, you can grasp the very goodness of God. Instead, we, we ought to see that God is completely good, also severe, but completely good, and His goodness is from His generosity towards us. And when we think about that, when you understand that, you look at Jesus who is acting in a compassionate way towards this audience. Why? Were they cool? No. Were they in the right place at the right time? Not necessarily. Did they have anything? No, they were starving and it was nighttime. Yet how was he treating them? He was treating them with compassion. Why? Because he's generous. Friends, see the generosity of God even before he does amazing things. We need to recognize that it's obvious here that Jesus is still teaching his disciples as he is bestowing on them his natural character because he says, do as I do. He tells them to do what he is doing there. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're here and you're a Christian, when we think about our own gospel ministry, your day in, day out gospel ministry and the people that God has placed you around, your ministry, your gospel ministry must be grounded in a devotion to the Father and in such a way that a heart towards others' needs of the gospel is just second nature, not out of a convenient opportunity. Jesus was singularly focused on one thing, bringing glory to the Father. And how did that exercise itself to the world that he was around? He was generous and compassionate. He saw needs, and even as he was going to the Father in prayer, he had compassion on those who were in great need. And we ought to be the same way loving the Lord as much as we can with all of our all, recognizing that we don't have to shift gears or downshift. Okay, now I'm going to focus on people. This is my people day, and this is my God day. I'll give you a week, and then I'll give you another week. They're all happening at the same time. If you focus on the Lord, you will recognize his compassion and love for the people that you have been placed around. Jesus here had called his disciples to be shepherds of the flock. And in this passage, he was giving them yet another example of how you shepherd the flock. You show mercy wherever you are, and you preach truth to whoever will listen. The disciples, very practically, wanted to send the people home, <laughs> and we would have too. But Christ, because he knew that he was the people's shepherd, cared for them. One commentator said, the sick, the ignorant, the miserable, the hungry meant more to Jesus than his own ease. Friend, do you see the compassion of Jesus on this day through this text the, the Lord of heaven and earth? I wonder, back to the original question, 
wherever God has you, does this help you or does this help give you a clearer picture of the one who you pray to? As you go to the Lord in your anguish or pain or frustration or just empty blah, do you recognize that you are going to the Savior who has compassion? It's an amazing thing. Second thing I hope you see from this text is not only his compassion, but here's, here's what we've all been expecting. You see his power right here in the passage. Look at verses 16 through 19. I'll, I'll read them out loud. It says in verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heavens and said, a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. This ought to give you a remarkable understanding. You might overlook it because it just seems so simple. You might overlook it, but this ought to give you a remarkable understanding of the glory of who Jesus is a little bit more. Matthew shows us a picture of Jesus' divine power. He's showing us that Jesus is divinely powerful. His power can be defined as something that is only God-like. Matthew shows us this picture and gives us a quite extraordinary array of influences and images of what Jesus was doing. All of us need to understand Jesus' divinity more and more. We too often want to tame who the person of Christ is. We often want to see those, those technical and interesting and powerful things about who Jesus is as just something that theologians spend their time with. They're the ones who can spell those interesting, long, who cares words. But friends, one of the things that we see in simple terms is that Jesus multiplied fish and fed a crowd, and the way that we can sum that up is that he is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Stop and think about that. We too often tame who the person of Jesus is rather than allowing him to reveal himself to us. In verses 16 through 19 and into 20, this gives the account of Jesus who is calling his disciples to bring him loaves and fishes and let him show them how powerful he is. But this is where the rejection mark of this passage is. This is why it fits in one of these eight series of rejections because when he says, feed them, what do they do? We can't feed them. You can't feed them. And he's like, bring me what you have. And they say, we only have a little bit. Are, are you insane? And they're doubting all that he can do. They're doubting his power. To satisfy the hunger of more than 5,000 people with so small a portion of food as five loaves and two fishes would obviously be impossible without the supernatural or divine multiplication of this food. Uh, and I, I personally, I think I've read or heard of or heard preach this passage a, a countless number of times. This is easily what we do, you know, at, at Sunday school or Good News Club or whatever. Like, you want, you want to hear about who Jesus is? Let me tell you about him feeding 5,000 people. And, you know, to a kid, it's like, wow, that's amazing. But the older you get, how many of you, when you feed 20 people, it is the most exhausting thing. And you go, I can't feed one more person. As someone comes through that door, someone has to leave. Right? Yet just imagine, understand the tension of this text. It was so easy for him to multiply to 5,000 plus people. The text doesn't even go into all the miraculous things that would happen, all the biological and, and chemistry that would go into this. It doesn't say from how he did it or where he placed it. How did he, how, where did he get all this? It just said he did it. 
there's a, li- there's a long line of fake miracles that surround the veracity and the truthfulness of Christianity. But nobody in their right mind would try to do something this big and think they can get away with it. What's recorded in our Gospels would have been widely circulated and would have reached people who were actually there at that day. You know, who, who of us can actually affirm this passage is true? We, we just have to rely on other people who say, that actually happened. And, and they rely on other people who said, that actually happened. There would have been people who were there that day. You think of, think of how many people, 20,000 people is, in this type of area. Someone would have said, ah, it wasn't about 5,000. It, like, it was like five. You know, I went, I went fishing in North Carolina last week. And no one in the world can catch a smaller fish than me. I've, I've, gone, I've gone fly fishing twice. And each time, I'm so bad at fly fishing, you have to have one of those people who go along with you and basically throw all their lures into the, into the water, waiting for you to do the same. Both times, I've reeled something in, and the guy next to me goes, that's the smallest fish I've ever seen in this river. <laughs> Thank you. And what do you do when you go home? You exaggerate a little bit, except I have a brother-in-law waiting, waiting for me to say, yeah, I caught a big trout, and he pounced at that moment. Friends, this is a remarkable claim that we have in our Gospels. Feeding more than 5,000 people, you can't just exaggerate that and expect to get away with it. Someone would have dumbed it down a little bit unless it was true. Yet there were even more than 5,000. More than 5,000 people were fed when there was effectively no food to begin with. This was an action that no magician, no pretender, no false prophet would ever have attempted because it's too easy to measure its true significance. Everyone would have gone away from it. God's word, being true to us, is the single most attacked claim in all of world history. If you say God's word is true, That is not a new stance that you have taken, but you need to know that millions and millions of others who have set out on a life journey to actually break that truth down so that you do not have confidence in it, and none of them get away with it. None of them get away with the reality that God is all-powerful, that Jesus, the Son of God himself, multiplied these fish from seemingly nothing. And in fact, it is, the, it is the most singularly held attack, not only in all of world history, but all the way back to the beginning with Satan. He, there was a claim that was said, and it was Jesus that said, or it was, it was this, man, it was Satan who said, not Jesus. It was Satan who said, did God actually say that? All that to say, don't look over the reality of thousands, tens of thousands of people were a part of this spectacular showcase of divine power, not just compassion. Food was multiplied exponentially to keep people near the teaching of Jesus. Why did Jesus do this? Well, he needed to feed them or else they'd probably go away. Why did he want them to not go away? It was in their benefit to be near the person of Christ. As if they hadn't had enough already... (laughs) This is the mighty work that Jesus performed. And by performing it, he gave conclusive proof that he was and is God. He is all-powerful. He called that into which, he called that into being which had not before existed. He provided visible, tangible, material food for thousands of people out of a supply which would have not satisfied ten. 
Surely we must be blind if we do not see in this the hand of what the psalmist says in Psalm 136, he who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. It was to keep them near him that he was multiplying these things. To create is the, is the unique privilege of God. All of us try to create various things in our lives, but none of us actually create the way God created on that day. One writer said about this passage, we ought to lay down before this passage and worship our active God. We should treasure up in our minds every evidence of the Lord's divine power. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you may see little in this story. You may, you may see it as just an exaggeration. Or honestly, you may see it as no big deal. You know, what's 5,000 in a world of 6 billion? That's not a big deal. It's a, it'd be like me feeding one person. You know, someone with six kids goes, that's nothing. You know, you're not even crying yet. But the true believer, if you're here and you're not a Christian, a, a true believer is enraptured by this passage because of the very real power it displays. God who came incarnate as a man doesn't act like just any man. This is, this is in many ways a very true historical account, but it gives us a glimpse. It gives us a, a foretaste, a picture of what Jesus was ultimately coming to do. He was ultimately not just coming to feed 5,000 people or to have people follow him. He is coming to rebuke them in such a way that we need the most powerful man ever to do a great work on our heart. And this is just a small glimpse. This is just a small glimpse of the power that it takes to turn your heart, which is called hardened, and to make it alive so that it is free in Christ. One of these things that, that will preach any Sunday. Now, one of the reasons why we, we talk about and we celebrate Easter as, as a normal holiday in the Christian calendar, but in many ways, Easter Sunday is every Sunday. And as Jeremy and I were planning the, the series of the, of the next sermons and songs that would go with them a couple weeks ago, I, I was a little bit off. I, I talked about um, how Jesus was going to walk across water, and he will in a couple of weeks from our passage. And, and I was like, you know, you think, you think it's tough to walk on water? Wait till you see him rise from the grave. And Jeremy was like, that's actually the, not the passage you're going to preach next week. And I was like, oh, what am I preaching? He goes, you're feeding the 5,000. Oh, you think feeding the 5,000 is a big deal? Wait till, you, <laughs> wait till you see him rise from the grave. I mean, this is, you think, think about that. Thank you. I, I really needed that. I've been practicing that for two weeks. But here's the thing. It seems impossible to feed 5,000 people from nothing. And it is, unless you are all powerful. And it seems impossible to forgive the totality of your sin. And it is, you cannot do that, but Jesus can. And he did that by actually going through what you and I go through, what we would never put ourselves in favor of. He actually placed himself on a cross and bore the very wrath of God so that you can be alive and free in Christ. And then, as if it didn't seem any more impossible, he was very dead and three days later became very alive. In many ways, you look at that and you go, 5,000 is nothing compared to what he did. 2,000 years ago, friends, see his power and notice that his power was from his generosity and his compassion towards sinners. 
Third thing, last things, see his provision. The disciples were doubting that he could do something like this. And who could blame him? You know, who would have thought? There are 5,000 plus people here. Oh, Jesus will make, you know, a lot of bread. But they also doubted, secondly, or thirdly in our outline, but the second thing they doubted is that he could and would provide for everyone that was in his midst. There's one other thing I'd like to point out to you and bring to your attention. You'll see that in verses 19 through 21 in this passage. This is actually why this particular passage fits in with the rejection narratives of this gospel. The disciples didn't think that the presence and the work of Christ was enough to satisfy his followers. Think about that. They didn't think yet that the mere presence and work of Jesus was enough to satisfy the lives of his followers. Christ is pictured in this passage as the only one who is truly able to meet all of their needs. In a quick brushstroke, you see that it's Christ who is exclusively able to meet all the needs of the people and feeding the multitudes in an instant. Christ shows his disciples that he alone is able to supply all of our needs, both material and spiritual. Look at verse 16 again, a little bit up in the text. He says, you've given them something to eat. And what would they soon learn after that? That Jesus himself is the very source of life. He's the one who has what they need. I don't have what they need. You don't have what they need. You can imagine all these disciples sitting around each other trying to gather as much food as they can and like, okay, if we can bind this, can we feed like half of them and maybe half of them will go home? They didn't have any of what they need. And today we live in an era of understanding the presence of Christ from the very truth of his word where he sent his spirit to dwell within all who believe. And it's the spirit there who points us to the person of Christ, which we can find fully through his word. And too often you and I place our hope in what we can find about God in the environment or through positive circumstances or even through rituals. The guy who I was fishing with last week, you know, you start up, you, it's going to be a long four hours if we don't start talking to each other because I'm not a good enough fisherman to keep us distracted. So you start talking and within five minutes, he says, what do you do for work? And you know, it's coming. It's like, I'm a pastor. This can either ruin the conversation or we can talk about stuff. Let's just go ahead and let's just talk about all religion right now. And, you know, this guy was saying that he, you know, believes in a lot of stuff, but he really likes to find solace on a river in the mountains. And you look around and you go, well, yeah, I mean, this is beautiful here. This is beautiful, but it's, but it's not as beautiful as who Christ is according to his scriptures. This will not ultimately satisfy who we are. The person of Jesus, who you and I can find in his very word, can actually satisfy us, completely satisfy us. As satisfying as a river in North Carolina will temporarily be. At some point, we have to go right to the fountain of truth there. We can know God through his word. But it was there which we see in our word what Jesus was doing. He recognizes that people are hungry. And what does he tell them? Stay with me. I know you're hungry. Stay here. Hold, hold fast. Stay with me. Come to me. I, I recognize that you're sick and you need healing. Come to me. Stay with me. Come to me. Recognizing that you and I are infiltrated everywhere on how or where we can find answers to our problems. A doctor may rightly prescribe something. A counselor may rightly analyze something. A priest 
may rightly recite something. But what Jesus had the disciples do that day was to bring everything they had and place it before his feet. And we give ourselves over to the Lord where we recognize that we, we have everything that we need, not by what we bring to the table, but what he compassionately gives to us, his life, his presence, his glory, his power. He is the source. He is the power. He is the very answer. I've said it here before, but how many of you would be weirded out if you would ever go to a counselor and that counselor recognizes your issues, understands what you're going through, is very empathetic and sympathetic, but what would you do if that, if that counselor said, what you need more of is me in your life? Or a doctor the same way. What you need more of is me as a doctor. Not actually going at the root issue, but what Jesus does is the only one who can go to the root issue where he says, your heart needs to be transplanted. Your heart needs to be taken out and my life needs to be placed in. In John 6, where Jesus calls himself the bread of life, it's clear what he symbolically means and that he is able to give bread. He is able to satisfy because he is the life that they need. Friend, do you see Christ Jesus as the one who provides everything in your life? Do you, do you see that? It is difficult recognizing that there are circumstances in our life that make us, frankly and practically, scared. There are those of you who are wondering what the next three or four months are going to look like if the sun keeps beating down on the crops. Or what will your life be like if you fail that next text, test on the base? Or what will people think of your family if that kid doesn't come home? Friend, do you actually believe and know Jesus as your provisional Lord? Do you pray to him as your provisional king? Do you hope in him as your provisional savior? He can feed the bodies and the souls of these in this text because he is the source of all strength. We know from John chapter 6 that this crowd was impressed by the miracle that Jesus did. They were impressed by the physical healings that Jesus was performing that day, but they were not impressed by his preaching. The disciples rejected and doubted his provisional grace, that the thousands rejected his prophetic proclamation. They wanted more of what he was giving them. They just didn't want to follow what he was saying. And Jesus' point in doing this miracle is to draw the disciples' eyes from the physical provision of bread to Christ's spiritual provision of what we need for eternal life. As the bread that was necessary for that food which is necessary to go on living, so the spiritual provision which he makes for us is necessary if we are going to have eternal fellowship with him. That's what Christ wanted his disciples to see. Understand what bread does to the body. And recognize that I'm the one giving it, but fully grasp the reality of what I can only do for your heart. That is what Christ wanted his people to see. And so I want to say in passing that this miracle also points to Christ's life as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. God through Moses, you think about how, how Jesus is showing himself to be the, the true and the better Moses through the book of Matthew. And Matthew is brilliant in portraying that. Jesus here is the Messiah King that has been waited for for all time, it feels like. Yet he is coming, not just as a conquering hero, but coming as someone who is fulfilling everything that was promised behind him. 
Moses had provided manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness. God, through Elijah, provided a continuous supply of flour and oil for a widow in need. God, through Elijah, fed 100 men with only 20 barley loaves and had some left over. But God, through his Son, our Lord Christ Jesus, fed 5,000 and many more. And on top of that, there were 12 baskets left over. How does that not tell us about the generosity and the compassion of God? Where the Lord is showing you here today the exceeding sufficiency of Jesus to meet every soul that is here. Listen to what Matthew Henry says, that those whom Christ feeds, he fills. Those whom he feeds, he fills. Christ is more than sufficient for every need that we have. Now, in conclusion, the only thing standing between us and his filling our need is our willingness to admit that we really need to be filled, that we actually do have a need that we need him to rescue us from. But you, you see far, far too often that we are a prideful people and we don't want to admit that we are poor and in need of compassion. We want to live life on our own. We want to, we want to be like those disciples who just wanted to go away and rest. We don't want to admit that we were sinners and are sinners and we have offended a holy and powerful, provisional, compassionate God by our very heart and actions. And so we see that the one who created everything the one who lifted up man in his own image, and the one who continually sought after man, even though man fell, would ultimately come incarnate to earth, living a perfect life, teaching people that he is the way, the truth, and the life, up into a very point where those people would hate that message in such a way that they would crucify Jesus. Yet in the most turning of events, or the greatest trade that you can ever imagine, it was Jesus who emerged from the grave Conquering sin and death, showcasing the power, the true power of God who can rejuvenate or bring a dead heart to life, to where when God works on you and shows himself to who he truly is to you, you look on him and go, I'm no longer an enemy of him. I don't want to be an enemy of him. I have a lot of sin that I need him to deal with, not on my own. So friends, back to the point of the original question, what is stopping you from trusting in Christ? What's the obstacle in your heart today to receiving the provision that Christ says is there before you? Is it your pride? Is it the consequences of confessing sin, which is between you and God, perhaps even you and others? I pray that, that today God would break down a wall of any hard heart that is surrounding you and would draw you to Christ who feeds you eternally. If you're a believer and you're weak, and you're doubting, I pray that you'd see again in this historical account the extravagant way which the Savior provides for our every need, where He can fill you and leave baskets fully left over. Friends, let's go to our provisional, powerful, and compassionate God in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. We ask that you would lift us up to see you for who you are, to understand your power, and to reflect and live in the way that you had your disciples live, that we would be as compassionate as you were. Oh God, we thank you for your compassion towards us that gives us life. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.